I'm Fran, and this is Consent Based Everything, a podcast about creating a culture of consent in our homes and beyond. Hello and welcome. I am here today with uh, Rosalia Rivera of Consent Parenting, and I'm really thrilled to be here um, chatting with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so you probably know uh, of Rosalia, but if you don't, she's on Instagram at Consent Parenting, and you're kind of like the main person who's like talking about consent and parenting I feel or at least the main person that I follow and uh and I feel like you have made quite an impact because you're linking the two things and you're very clear about why like why are Mm -hmm. we doing this and you also really like put all the data out there and I'm always like anytime I read a post and I'm I'm always like oh wow like this is new like I had no idea that this was actually the statistics and the data around prevention and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, before we go into it, um, I'll just let you quickly say uh, who you are, what you do, and kind of how you came to this work. Sure. Thanks. Thanks again. Um, yeah. So Rosalia Rivera, um, I am a rape culture disruptor, um, and what that means is um, I am on a mission to eradicate child sexual abuse. I do that through consent education. Um, I focus on child sexual abuse prevention. So that's the specialty that I focus on. Um, But consent parenting um, is where I share the bulk of that information for parents. And I work predominantly with parents who are survivors themselves um, because that's my origin as well. I'm a survivor. Um, My sister is, my mother um, as well. So uh, there's a a history in in my family, unfortunately. And what I've come to find out is that's not uncommon. Um, A lot of survivor parents, um, you know, struggle with how do they teach their kids. And so that's the focus of my work is is helping survivor parents. But my work really translates to all parents and how they can, you know, reduce the risks um, for, for this kind of abuse. Um, I'm also the chair of the SAGE, which leads the BRAVE movement, which is a new movement we launched last year. And it's a global movement with 15 survivors who are leading the charge to end childhood sexual violence uh, globally. And I'm the uh, co-founder of the Canadian um, Survivors Council as well, which is also um, relatively new. Um, So I'm really invested in this work. because it has become such a global issue uh, problem. It has been escalating, particularly since um, the pandemic started and it's really out of control now with kids on screens, even if they're really young, even if they're you know toddlers, um, you know, child sexual abuse material and all of that. So we can, we can dive into all those things if you'd like, but I'm really also focused on the data, you know, as you mentioned. And if we don't use evidence-based information to figure out what the problem is, we can't use evidence-based information to solve it. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit of a research data nerd, and that's why I keep trying to sort of synthesize that information for parents so that they can really apply it in their everyday lives and really help keep their kids safer. Uh, so yeah, thank you for putting all that out there, because it's not immediately apparent from your Instagram, like a lot of that I didn't know. So um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to begin with like, why is teaching parents about consent important? 
to you? And I, you've touched upon it a little bit, but just to go a little deeper into that. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, you know, first of all, there's still this misconception that consent has only to do with sex and it absolutely does not. It applies to everything in our lives really. And it's a really important foundation to start with before we start teaching about abuse prevention. Um, most people think it's, you know, one in the same. And consent is really about our rights, our innate human rights to our bodies. And so when we can teach that to our kids from a really young age, they become really empowered versus just jumping into body safety or prevention education, which can be scary, right? Because we're starting from a place of there's scary stuff in the world that could happen versus, hey, you have these rights and I want to respect those rights. I want to teach you about your rights. I want to honor them. I want you to learn how to uphold them. There's all these pieces to um, consent education and, and consent is really founded in body autonomy. Your, your body belongs to you. Um, from there, we start to learn how to develop boundaries. And, you know, when you talk to most adults, most adults don't know how to set boundaries. They don't know because it's not part of our culture. It's not culturally normed to uphold our boundaries. You know, a lot of times people think that's selfish or they're going to offend somebody or, you know, they're going to sever a relationship because they haven't set boundaries in that relationship before. So when we start teaching this to children, um, I think there's a little bit of a culture clash that we can we experience. And so parents aren't sure how to navigate that. They're not sure how to teach their kids about it because they don't know how to do it. Um, so it's really this foundational work of body autonomy, boundaries, and then consent, realizing, recognizing that we do need to ask people and people do need to ask us, right, before things happen with and to our bodies. So this really foundational work is what has to be set first before we can teach abuse prevention in, in not just a more effective way, but a more empowering way so that kids really recognize that they have these rights and that if anything inappropriate happens, right, this is where we start to move into abuse prevention. What is appropriate and inappropriate? What's safe and not safe? What are the things that we can look for in people that make them safe or not safe, right? That's abuse prevention. So we can then start walking into that conversation with a lot more assurance that our parents have our back, that we have a right to our voice, that we can speak up if something inappropriate happens um, and not be afraid, not have shame, not have fear that, you know, something may be our fault or we, you know, somehow made that happen and kind of fall prey to predators. Um, so it's really important to me that we teach that to parents and we start from that really solid foundation. And I want to preface by saying also that it's not always easy. It's not always the easiest road to go down because we're not just teaching this to our kids, but also to the adults in our kids' lives. And that's harder, but it is so worth it. It is, you know, the, the dividends that pay are amazing and so much worth the hard work of doing this. Um, and that's, you know, where, why I, I sort of start from that foundation, um, particularly as a survivor, it is healing work and it is you know, this reclaiming of power that um, it is, is just, it, it has changed my life. And I hope that it continues to help change the lives of other parents as well. Yeah. And I think, uh, like you said, like the, the harder thing is almost like communicating what you're doing to the other adults that are involved with your child. So like, 
your family family is always a big one right because okay we were all raised I guess in a culture that routinely overrides boundaries right um and and everybody's culture is going to be a little bit different and everyone's family will be a, a bit different but I remember so I I grew up in Italy and um uh, Italians have a real thing with like uh you have to eat you have to constantly mm. be eating and they have to constantly be feeding you and you can never say no mm. and if you say no it's insulting like you're insulting the person and mm-hmm. I felt like this was such a violation of my sense of like actually not wanting to eat the thing right. uh, I mean we have a lot of other things that I think are also universal like the hug you know hugging without consent and generally like handling and touching and all of that so I guess my I guess I'm I'd love to talk about like how do you handle that like how would a parent mm-hmm. handle all those different yeah. right yeah 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 that's such a great question it's it's probably the you know biggest question that I get from parents it's like I want to do this. Sounds great. But I'm a little bit scared of, you know, what I'm going to hear back. Um, And a lot of times parents have, you know, spoken up about these things and they do get pushed back. And here's what I always say. Let's start with the fact that you're new to this work, right? If you're being introduced to this for for the first time and you make a request from someone who has no background as to why you're making the request, they're, you know, based on cultural norms, they're going to, you know, have a reaction that you probably expect, which is, you know, either surprise or, um, you know, sort of like a pushback of why, why am I, you know, having to do that? And, you know, I'm not a bad person. Um, you know, so there's, there's sort of this sense of like, they feel like the, the finger's been pointed at them. Um, and so what parents can do is really set the stage first for, um, helping them understand your why before you ask for the what, right? So if we start with educating them and saying, you know, I, uh, now that my child is this age, I've started learning about, you know, how to make sure they're staying safe. And as I've been learning this and as I've been learning about the statistics and how prevalent this issue is, I obviously don't want my child to go through that. And so I started educating myself of like, what can I do to help them be safer? And what I've learned is that it's really important to teach them about body autonomy and boundaries. And as I've started learning about that, these are some of the things that I've learned, you know, so making sure that we ask for hugs and kisses. I know that that's not normally what our culture does, right? Especially if you're speaking to a culture that does it like Italians love, you know, kissing on both cheeks. And like, that's like part of the culture, right? And you might be disrupting that culture by doing that. And the thing is that you can say something like, I know my, my child loves you and that's not in, that's not in question. And I know that you love my child and that's not in question. And I know that you're a safe person and that's not in question, but that depends on, you know, if that's really true or not for you, but you can say that if it is, um, and you can say, you know, all of these things aren't in question. What I want to ask from you is something that is not going to put those things in question, but is actually going to help support the body safety education that I'm teaching my child, right? And so if you start from this place of like, here's some information, some facts, some reasons why I'm doing this work, and what I know to be true about your 
position in my child's life, you know, that you're a loving grandparent or that you're, you know, a, a loving aunt or whatever the case is. And then say, here's what I need. Here's what I'm asking from you. Here's what I would love for you to support me in. Then it doesn't feel like you're being attacked, right? Then it feels like, oh, you're asking for me to help you with something that has to do with your child, right? So then it doesn't feel like, oh, your parenting style is, you know, this, or, you know, they won't feel as offended um, because you're actually calling them in instead of them feeling like you're calling them out. Mm -hmm. So if we can start from that position of, first of all, educating people, because most people don't know, and most people think it's such a taboo topic that they don't want to talk about it. But if you're coming from this place of almost like a scientist, like, wow, I didn't know all these things and I'm learning about them now and it's blowing my mind. And so I'm taking action. Here's the action I'm taking. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's how you can help. And then you bridge that conversation of like, so can you make sure that you ask? And if you tend to, you know, if you happen to forget, I'll remind you, you know, I'll help you with this. I'll help you do this. Cause I know it wasn't, you know, natural for me. I wasn't raised that way, you know? So you're, you're reminding them that you understand the culture, but you're also working to shift it a bit because it needs shifting, you know, to be honest, most cultures need this shifting. And a lot of times it also is, is uh, relational to gender, you know, girls tend to be asked to be more submissive than, you know, boys or men. And so we're pushing against cultural norms that are deeply ingrained. We may get pushback regardless, even if you phrase it perfectly, you may still get pushback and you have to be okay with that because ultimately your child's safety is what is prioritized above all, right? Um, and even in things like eating, you know, when we push kids to eat past their point of fullness, we're asking them to do something against their comfort level that just does, you know, that is maybe not even healthy for them. Um, so, you know, you can decide how far you want to get into that conversation with the person depends on, you know, reading body cues. Are they accepting this or are they have already dismissed it? Like what, you know, that helps you navigate the conversation. Sometimes you need to have it in small chunks. Sometimes, you know, planting the seeds before you're going to meet the person in person, you know, sending an email and saying, Hey, FYI, you know, maybe if it's a grandparent, you can write an email and then say, Hey, you know, I'd love to discuss this more with you when we meet because it's really an icebreaker, right? It's going to open up a conversation. So that's probably the best way that I've seen it handled and what I've seen as successful um, and where I, where I see most parents, you know, having um, more honest, open and like receptive conversations. Yeah. And I think having that conversation also requires us and like also the other adults around us to almost revisit like, what we think children deserve and mm -hmm. the sort of treatment that we believe children deserve right because I think yeah. it can be so easy to dismiss like uh children's right to consent because oh they're just children like they right. should be able to make these decisions for themselves or whatever and we're just so used to like children being routinely just you know not respected in that yeah. way and so yeah it's, it's well it's adultism yeah exactly it's a uh, yeah so it's like a it's it's a massive shift and and so you're not only you're doing all the abuse prevention stuff which is really important but also you're kind of changing the whole culture in a way right yeah, yeah for sure and I think what what we 
what we also want to try to appeal to is the humanity of that person, right? It's like, this is something that I recognize is, is a shift for you. So we want to acknowledge them. We want to hear them out too, right? So when we communicate with people, a lot of times we tend to talk at them. We want to be able to also listen, right? We want to acknowledge maybe grandma had this fantasy in her head that she's going to be able to do all these things. And, you know, this kind of disrupts that fantasy. And so a lot of times people go, I, I don't want to hear why you don't want to do it. I just want you to do it, right? And so part of this is that conversation of, you know, like recognizing the other person's humanity and their wants and desires and then helping them understand how that just needs to shift a bit. It's not that they don't get to have time with grand their grandchild. It's just that the way that they have that time has to shift a bit. And I think ultimately we have to also recognize that when we have these conversations, there's two reasons to have them. One is, of course, we're asking for the request so that they recognize what we're doing and we're asking them to, you know, oblige, right? To, to ask our child for a hug or a kiss, to not just tickle them without asking first, to, you know, listen to their cues, right? And, and respect their boundaries. And the second reason that we're doing it is we want to weed out potential offenders because most people don't know that 90% of abuse happens by people that you as the parent and or your child knows and trusts. And so it could be someone in your family. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone you know. It could actually even be another um, child. It could be a cousin, a teenager. You know, the, there's so many people in our children's lives, right? So when we communicate this, we're basically saying to any potential offender, I'm an engaged, proactive, educated parent, and I am educating my child, right? And so that all on its own can really reduce the risks for abuse because that person who is a potential offender is not going to um, now target your child in the same way as before where, oh, you know, I can get away with this because mom is none the wiser. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like, oh, this is not going to be an easy target. This child is going to be able to report. They are going to know that what I'm doing is wrong, right? So that's a huge reason. And that's one of the reasons why I say you've got to develop the courage muscles to have these conversations because that's one of the biggest ways that you can reduce this risk. Because when your child is just learning, just starting to learn about this, we cannot expect them to all of a sudden say no in a moment, in a situation where they're with somebody that they love that you know they don't know is potentially going to abuse them, they've been grooming them, right? The child at that point who's four or five years old or two years old is just barely learning what we're teaching them. We cannot expect them to prevent the abuse from happening. So we really have to be that first firewall. And the best way to do that is to have the conversation on their behalf in a sense, right? Set the boundary on behalf for the child until they can start to really do it themselves, which, you know, takes maybe a year of consistently teaching them this education, getting them comfortable with setting boundaries, knowing how to uphold boundaries, how to report, like there's a lot, right? And when I teach parents, like, here's all the things you need to teach your child, it can feel overwhelming. And I'm like, you don't have to do this overnight. <laughs> this isn't something that you do even in a month. This takes time right? How long has it taken for your child to do all these other things that they've had to learn how to do, right? 
And so we want to give them grace and patience and, and time. And in the meantime, we need to be that mama bear firewall that speaks up for them, that is their voice in the meantime with other adults so that they recognize this family's off limits. You know, that's and that's a phrase that um, Feather Burkhauer coined, who's someone that I, I look up to highly. Um, she's amazing. And she's been a veteran in this. You know, she talks about this protective communities that we need to build for our kids around them within our home, in our schools, in our communities. We have to learn how to speak up about these things. I love that idea of like build of like it's not just you against the world kind of thing or you like you know protecting your child against everybody else but like almost educating everyone around you so that they can also be the protective community like you said like that's yeah okay idea yeah, because I think it's spoken about enough yeah exactly I think that a lot you know and I, I wrote this in a recent post um where I, I did a blog post called is grandma grooming your child right because grandma can give lots of gifts and you know, maybe if they're giving gifts without you knowing, because it could be something as simple as like, I'm going to get you ice cream before we, you know, you have dinner, but don't tell mom. And that is a grooming behavior. Maybe grandma's not grooming your child, but she's setting up your child to be groomed by other people because she doesn't know that that's not okay, that that actually can backfire. Mm -hmm. So teaching grandma about this is important, right? And then grandma would say, okay, no, no more secrets, because that makes me an unsafe person. And it teaches my child to be okay with secrets, right? So we're setting them up for not good things. And two is that now I can also be aware of what those grooming signs are. So if I see somebody else doing it, I'm going to let my daughter know mm -hmm. that, hey, pay attention to that person. Or I don't, you know, there was something like now I know the grooming signs too. And so ideally, that's what grandma should do. If grandma doesn't see that and she goes, well, I don't think I should have to, you know, then it's like, well, grandma, are you doing this from a place of ego where you don't want to, you know, have your ego hurt because you want to do what you want to do? Or are you thinking of the child and the child's best interest in this situation, right? So a lot of times we have to have those hard conversations with people and ask them, like, what's the real reason that you don't want to help me with this, right? So Sometimes it requires having some challenging conversations with people. Um, but I promise you that the discomfort that you feel in that moment reduces dramatically the discomfort your child would ever have to be in with a potential offender. Yeah. And I think it is, it can be confronting for, you know, other adults and, and for us, actually, if, if we went through things or experiences where our consent was overridden or where there was abuse or, you know, there was kind of uh, overriding boundaries. Um, and then it can be kind of confronting to be like, um, yeah, to have to then uh, respect someone else's boundaries or a child's boundaries when ours weren't, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As children. Yeah. It's like, sense. well, I didn't have to do that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then this is, you know, part of rape culture, which is why I say, you know, I'm a rape culture disruptor because we're disrupting rape culture to, to have to ask someone for consent means that we have to recognize that person's autonomy. And if our autonomy was never respected growing up, it's like foreign language, right? It's like, what do you mean I have to ask? Like, nobody had to ask me. I didn't have to go through that world that way. 
So yeah, a lot of times it's um, just really shifting this and, and recognizing that we are culture changers, we are change makers, and that takes courage, but we don't have to do it alone. And I always say, even with parents who are like um, approaching a school to ask them, you know, what are your abuse prevention policies? That can feel really sort of nerve wracking if you feel like you're the only parent asking this question. If your child's already in a school, you have the advantage of connecting with other parents and saying, hey, can we meet to talk about this? And you can, you know, get together with your, you know, school PTA or the school, you know, parent organization and ask them to join forces with you and, you know, outline, here's what I know. You know, I just had a consultation with a parent who's in a similar situation and they said, here's some articles. She's in the UK. So I sent her some articles specific to the UK of statistics that most people probably don't know around nurseries and schools. And, you know, in, there's a 1000% um, increase since the pandemic of school age children being in child sexual abuse material videos, which means that there, you know, a lot of people tend to think, you know, online safety is for older kids, or I, you know, child sexual abuse material, I don't have to worry about that. That's, that's not happening to my child. But do we really know, are we sure that the school that they're going to, the teachers, the people that they're interacting with, the youth serving organization, all of those adults are safe people. Or do they, you know, are, is the school not set up where maybe they do have one-on-one -on -one time with a particular adult and that adult knows that they can take advantage of that and film them or ask them to do things like we really do need to have these conversations, right? And that's one of the best ways to reduce those risks is by talking to those adults, educating people, coming together with a group of parents and saying, can we approach the school together because there's strength in numbers to have these conversations and then you're not doing it alone. So that's also something I recommend is like, you know, if you, um, you know, are still with your partner and you can have that conversation together with grandma, that's way more impactful than just you, right? So gather community in the best way that you can, educate them and then take action together. Mm. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about um, actually how you would, go about doing something like that in a nursery or a preschool or daycare or a school um because like you said there's just so many op potential opportunities for abuse right in situations yeah. like that, especially like bigger schools um but everywhere really and daycares and stuff um and I was reading your the data you have on your Instagram actually about that which is kind of horrifying mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if there's anything that is like if you feel like anything's being done about that like on a wider level not just individual parents going yeah you know. yeah well actually um the uh, as part of the brave movement one of the things that we're doing um this year actually is we're uh, joining part of the EU task force that that uh has legislation in the works um, for a safer internet, which includes, you know, how do we track um, content that is abuse content, right? So that we can find the perpetrator, so we can rescue children. Um, and I don't mean brave itself, but just the, um, the governments of the world, right? So in particular, it's starting with the uh, European Union. The UK also has legislation. The, um, the US, you know, has 
certain things in place that they're starting to look at, not just necessarily with online stuff, although that seems to be sort of the where a lot of legislation is at because they can do something about big tech, right? And they can do something about um, tracking. There's a lot of ways that there's more tangible stuff. But I think even with, um, you know, Canada, for example, with the council that I'm part of, one of the things that we're looking to do is provide curriculum in the schools um, that is specific to body safety. It doesn't have to do with sex ed. It just has to do with body safety. And how can we introduce that into the schools so that, first of all, not just the children are getting access to the information, but that the adults in the school recognize that this curriculum is important and it does matter and it does need to be taught and it does need to be included in what we think about when we are setting the culture of a school, you know, the norm of that school. And so if, if we can get that passed in Canada, which I'm hoping this year we can make some, um, some groundbreaking moves with that, if we can implement that across the country nationally, that could be a blueprint for the United States. It can be a blueprint for European countries. Is I know that this shouldn't be just for parents to be on their shoulders to do. We have to do it on a larger scale, on a bigger community level, um, funded and supported by governments that care, you know, that support the educational system, that support teachers. They're, they're so taxed and stressed already, and we're asking them to do this other thing, and parents don't agree with what should be taught and not taught. So we really have to get on the same page about what are the critically important pieces of information that children need for body safety education? How can we educate the parents as well? and bring them on board and make this universally accessible. So those are definitely, you know, some of the things and, and um, because yeah, it just feels like the wild, wild west out there. Like, what do I teach? How do I teach this? What's the right information? You know, sometimes, um, you know, access to it, financial access to it is, is a barrier. So there's a lot that still needs to be done globally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there, the, the good news for parents is that, um, I think people like us who are doing this work, you included, right, that you're here helping parents have access to this information is what's going to get us out of this. Um, because right now it feels like we're in a deep hole, you know, and parents are trying to climb out of it. We're all trying to climb out of it. Um, but there is hope. And I want people to to know that there is there are people um you know, survivors and non-survivors, allies who are all doing this work collectively, trying to sound the alarm so that we also get parent support because we we need to do this together, right? It can't just be like the the people who are on this mission, but also the parents who are supporting the mission and saying, you know, we do agree, we recognize, we acknowledge, we're talking about it, we're helping spread the information um, so that governments pay attention and see, okay, parents are really interested in seeing this happen right i think without that base of parents saying we want this to happen they're not going to you know move as fast as they could so we really need to galvanize you know um parent communities to start talking because that keeps going up you know the chain through schools through administrators you know all the way up to the top where the funding can come in to to provide that education I think, I mean, I always think that like a huge piece about uh, around kind of children and consent is also like um, 
practicing it as adults and actually modeling it modeling it for them. so not only showing them how we practice it in our lives but also like us actually respecting them so uh, you know for parents that looks a certain way uh, but like within institutions like I'm thinking um you know hospitals or like doctor's offices schools nurseries any sort of place or institution where our child might go like that almost requires a huge shift in how things are done because mm-hmm. fundamentally many schools you know they can they can teach the material but then they're Applying not it. letting a child go to the bathroom when they need to go and so it's yeah they're not applying it like you said and so it's it's kind of contradictory in a way I mean I I feel like there's a dissonance there yeah I and I completely agree I think that that's more of a cultural shift that we I think we have to create just as a parent culture to ask for that and to I think that the more that the more of us have these conversations with schools with the institutions right we we norm right so what that means is we set the norm by what we ask for and demand we are seeing that the norm is less and less becoming corporal punishment although there are still schools that believe that that's okay there's still parents who believe that that's okay um but that's we're we've been shifting away from that for a long time now right where most parents i think recognize that that's not helpful it doesn't actually create the behavior that we want and it does more damage than anything so that's been you know over a course of maybe a decade that we've been seeing this message more parenting experts and parent educators and coaches are talking about this and helping parents make that shift and in turn schools are starting to recognize that shift right so it takes time and unfortunately it feels like we don't have time but that's what it takes is really being that parent that's going to be communicating it that's talking to people and it really takes a courageous parent you know it takes someone and and like I think when parents hear this, it's like, oh my God, I have so many things I'm already stressed out about and so many things I'm worried about. And like, I don't have the energy and I have to do this one more thing, but it will pay in the long run because generations from now, you laid the groundwork for a cultural shift, mm-hmm. you know, and that takes a lot of guts. <laughs> it takes energy. Um, and I think sometimes we think it's this big thing that we have to, it just happens in small conversations little conversations over time, having that conversation with the play date parent that you're hanging out with, mm-hmm. that parent might have more influence than you think. And they speak to the, you know, committee at the school about it, or just, you know, writing an email to the principal and saying, Hey, you know, this is something that we're, we're looking at. I'd like to share some resources for you to take a look at. So it's, sometimes it's just an email. Sometimes it's one conversation. Sometimes it's multiple conversations with, you know, the, your family, um, but all of those those moments build on each other and create ripple effects. And so we have to trust that the the voice that we have that we can use is having an impact, even if we feel like we're just one little person doing it. Because yeah. collectively, if all of us make those little actions, right, we're making a shift and we're making a change. True. So, um, you know, yeah. I think also like empowering and like standing by our children when they resist. 
So mm. like given them, you know, when we've kind of dripped all of that knowledge and information and we've kind of stood by their side and for years essentially, because in the end it takes years, right, for them to really come into a place where they can say no and they can, you know, really resist. And like also I think calling it resistance instead of like disrespect which I think has been the dominant narrative you know when a child says mm -hmm. no to something or when a child says they're not okay with something it's seen as like disobedience or disrespect right. uh, and kind of standing by their side when they when they do resist um yeah they get older and they get better at it and more confident at it um yeah. and I see my children they're a little older so they're eight eight and eleven and they're definitely in that place now where they they are not so bothered about like hurting the person's feelings and you know I sometimes am more worried about that that than they because yeah. they, they know that they they deserve to have a voice really. yeah yeah absolutely and just to put a pin on that point I think we realize that our children have developed their voice when we see them doing it and there's a point of pride and then like you said also a moment of like oh I hope that's okay <laughs> because I didn't want you know I don't want anybody to be offended um but at the same time sometimes we come across people who are like oh you know that's so disrespectful and we can flip the script and say actually we're teaching them respect we're teaching them that they also need to ask people for things first and not just assume that they can have it so we're we're teaching them about respect and that they're not entitled to things just because of their position in the world right and so that kind of flips the script for people and they're like oh yeah i never thought of it that way like it is respectful and i you know so it, it really is is a way of um honoring our children and helping them develop their voice through those actions and then, you know, again, those opportunities for, for nuanced conversations, even with our kids, you know, we want them to have empathy, but also to recognize that their comfort, you know, that they shouldn't do something for, like, how does this play out in relationships later? You know, um, when my child is 16 and in a relationship with someone, are they going to do something that they're not comfortable doing? because they want to show this person that they love them or do they recognize this doesn't feel okay and this person's pushing me to do something I'm not okay with that's a red flag that doesn't make me feel like this person loves me it makes me feel like they don't care you know so we actually help them learn how to navigate this on their own as we as they grow up and I think that's such a, such a powerful vision to hold on to when you're teaching these things to your child when they're when they're younger because it can feel like well I'll just let this slide and maybe with this person I'll, I won't push it you know but we're giving mixed messages and so it's you know it's not an easy thing and over time we're going to make mistakes and that's okay we can as long as we own the mistakes and we work to fix them and we talk to our child about the mistake we made so that they recognize it you know there's there's um something that I think when we start practicing consent, a lot of people have this, um, you know, sort of misunderstanding, which is, it's kind of like this myth that you, if you don't have boundaries for your child, 
you know, they're going to just do whatever they want and they set the boundaries. And that's not true. When we teach children about boundaries, we're also setting our own boundaries so that they understand how that works, right? And it's okay to have certain boundaries. And we have to have, they need certain boundaries, right? Because it helps them understand the world and their parameters within them. And also what it means to have a boundary set for them. So boundaries are great for parents to also have, you know, when they're crossing the street and they're two, you're not going to just let them run by themselves because that's what they want we are there for their health and safety, you know, so learning all these little nuances um, makes a difference. It takes time and it's, it's going to be an adjustment if that's not how you grew up. And most people didn't grow up like that. Um, So, you know, be patient with yourself too. I always say to parents, like, give yourself grace. It's okay if you made a mistake, right? You learn from it, you help your child learn from it and you grow and you keep going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, yeah, it's going to take time. It's going to be a big shift um, where I feel like we're making these really big uh, leaps and bounds of progress as a society in general. And this is something that's kind of, um, this is still new. So there's going to be a lot of people in the world, a lot of parts of the world that are so foreign to this, it doesn't make sense. And that's going to take more education. You know, if you're you know, an immigrant from another country and your family's really rooted in the way that they did things, you know, just be prepared that you're going to come up against some challenges and be open to continuing the conversation with both your child and say, you know, we didn't grow up like this. I didn't grow up like this. Grandma didn't teach me things like this, right? So this is why grandma's having a hard time understanding, but you still have a right to your body and you still have a right to say no, even though grandma may not understand, right? So it's kind of this dance between your child and the adult and you navigating this new way of existing in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have another question, which is about, um, like, what would you say to people who who say that, like, doing things like, for example, teaching children the, like, correct anatomical names for body parts and, like, talking to kids about things like pot- a potential abuse or... A situation that might feel uncomfortable like what would you say to people who feel like that's a little too much like for children or feel like it's not like it doesn't fit in their vision of like protecting childhood yeah kids innocence or whatever yeah so I think that that you know helping those people understand that that's rooted in rape culture rooted in this idea that those parts of our body are somehow inappropriate or dirty or sinful, like whatever they've attached to that because they're afraid of saying the word. We actually are um, perpetuating this, this idea that, you know, these, these parts of our bodies are wrong and it can create a lot of shame and um, confusion for a child, right? So when we give them accurate information medical information, right? I always bring it back to its medical information. These are just part names to parts of our bodies that are on our bodies. We can't deny them that they're there. Um, and giving a child accurate information actually reduces abuse because, you know, and here's where you explain the why, right? So you can explain when, you know, based on the research, based on evidence and data, when an abuser recognizes that a child is educated about their body, they are less likely to target that child. So this is a protective action, 
that we help children um, be able to do unconsciously because the child's not thinking, now that I know this part of my body, I can say what it is and somebody's going to not abuse me, right? They're not thinking that obviously. But when the child, you know, can say that word without shame, um, with confidence that they recognize that part of their body, um, that will deter a potential offender because they recognize that the child's been educated versus using a cutesy name or a nickname, um, which which tells an offender that, you know, there's some kind of shame around that part of the body in the home and they can exploit that. So that's one aspect that you can educate people on. The other is that you want your child to have a, a positive sense of self of their body. And that doesn't take away their innocence because you don't view those parts of the body as dirty or sinful. So for you in your home, you feel that that's just education, that's body literacy, right? So that's the, the second piece. And the third piece is that not educating a child uh, on that doesn't protect their innocence. It actually puts their innocence at risk. So I always flip the script on people and say, I actually, by, by sharing that information, it does not um, take away their innocence. It actually protects it. I, I don't want to put that innocence at risk by not educating my child and then increasing the risk for a potential offender to take advantage and exploit their lack of education on this topic. Um, all of this education around private parts and safety is so key and it does not take away from a child's innocence because that's really a um, adult idea. That's an adult theory. It's not a child's theory, right? And a child doesn't see that as like, oh, I am you know, no longer innocent. I know about all these things. They are not interested in sex. They're not interested in sexual activity. Right. We're not awakening that by talking to them about it, but and it, a person who exploits them will wake awaken that prematurely because they will exploit the fact that the child hasn't been educated. So, um, you know, we, we have to help other adults recognize that by, you know, and ultimately, if an adult has that criticism, that's that's their criticism. Like we can't change that. They may still ultimately believe that. We know that for ourselves and for our child, this is the path that we've chosen of how to educate them. And we have to be, you know, sort of strong enough to stand by our conviction on this based on the data, you know, so you can always pull the data out and say, based on research that's been done and education that's been taught and, you know, segments that have been studied on how effective this is, I will stand by the data and the evidence-based information and education on this versus your idea of what is right or wrong or sinful or not sinful or innocent or not innocent, you know, this is what I believe and what we're going to practice. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. That was really clear. Um, I'm going to let you go soon, but I did want to ask one last thing, which is um, about online safety, especially for older kids and you know once kids start start to use um start to have their own phones and maybe be on social media at some point or go on youtube by themselves or whatever like what are the things that the kind of red flags and the things that you would recommend to parents yeah so i'm i'm not an online safety expert but i do have an 11 year old and i have had to 
practice a lot of this myself and learn a lot of it myself as well. Um, because, you know, I have similar age range. My, my kids are between seven and 11. I have three and my oldest, you know, is the one who's online the most. Um, we have, you know, rules in place and we review them regularly because as kids get comfortable using the internet or devices, um, they push a little bit, right? They want to test how far they can go. And we are very um, solid on certain rules. Like there's absolutely no devices in closed rooms. It has to be, you know, where I can hear, where I can glance and see if I need to. Um, if there are, you know, chats on a game, um, I want to be able to hear what's going on. So ideally some kind of voice chat instead of a, a typed chat um, or no chat at all. Um, and there's, you know, we're, we're tiptoeing towards, you know, chats, but there's still, you know, I'm always testing my child. What would happen if this happened? Right. So I do a lot of what if scenarios with them. Um, I talk to them about the fact that, you know, children have been, you know, tricked. You know, we talk about the concept of tricky people a lot. Whenever I see an example of it um, in a movie or, you know, a TV show, I bring it up um, so that all the kids, you know, are aware of that. So we, I mean, obviously in my house, we talk about this often and my kids aren't afraid of it. They feel really empowered by the fact that they're, you know, they have awareness of these things. Um, and so I think making it an open and ongoing conversation is key. I don't agree with um, devices that can be unsupervised. So smartphones um, that they can take to school, that, that can be with them, you know, in a bedroom, that they get to keep overnight, absolutely a no-no. Um, what I do recommend when parents enter the digital space is to have a uh, media, a family media agreement. Um, commonsensemedia.org has a free template that parents can use, for example, and it helps to, you know, uh, open up these conversations. So you can say, you know, here's some rules that I think we need to follow about this. Um, if you've already given your child's device and you haven't had this conversation, you can say, you know what, I, I've just learned about this. And I think this is a great idea. We didn't do this before, but I'd like to implement it now. Let's talk about this, right? Um, so setting some ground rules and also making it safe to report if something happens and when it happens, because kids will make mistakes. Offenders will somehow access them. Um, you know, whether it's them, through them directly or through a friend. Um, you know, I heard about a story um, that the child was introduced to this stranger through a friend. So the offender met the original kid, um, managed to gain their trust to have them connect to other kids. So this child thought that they were talking to a peer and, you know, was talking to them for a while. and. The, the peer said, oh, you know, why don't we do a game together on this, you know, and then introduce the friends. Oh, this is my friend. Like you can trust them. Right. So if it's in, an introduction to a friend, then it doesn't feel like a stranger anymore. You know, so I've shared that story with my kids. And it's like, if you don't know them in person, if you haven't met them, they're not a friend. You don't you can't verify who they are. Um, so, you know, these kinds of honest conversations, when you see a story in the news, you can modify it to, to share what's appropriate with your child um, without you know, making a really big scary thing, but just enough for them to know kids get tricked out there and we have to really be careful. Like, And it's okay for you to check in with me. I'm not gonna 
you know, remove your device because you made a mistake. If you found out that something was wrong, that you said something or you did something that you shouldn't have, you will never, like we realize that the issue itself is almost punishment enough. I'm not going to punish you more. I want to be there to help you. My job is to keep you safe and whatever it is, you know, however bad you think it is, trust me, what's more important to me is that you're safe. And that's what I'm going to focus on is how do we make sure that you're safe again, right? So helping kids really um, feel good about being able to come to you and to also um, be okay with making mistakes. Like the parent needs to be okay with that. Kids are, uh, you know, notoriously low risk, like um, what's their, their risk, uh, not risk averse, what's the opposite of risk averse, where they're, they, they actually have a higher chance of doing risky things, right? So we have to recognize that and know that kids are going to make mistakes. So that's a big part of it. I think when kids know that it's safe to, to say this happened and I did this and I didn't mean to, and, you know, and you not punishing them severely or taking away their device, helping them learn how to use it again properly, you know, cause this, these devices are going to be in our kids' lives inevitably. Um, but as far as social media, I think that's a really dangerous zone to allow our kids to go into before 13. I think honestly, even 13 is still young. The U.S. Surgeon General just came out with a statement saying 13 is still too young for social media. Um, I agree with that because social media, I think kids need social media literacy education. You know, what's real, what's not media literacy education in general. Like when you're watching a YouTube ad, do you understand that someone's selling something to you? When you're watching a show, what is the motive behind, you know, the people who made the show? Um, you know, just helping them understand media in general, and then to throw them into social media where they're interacting or engaging with content that is not necessarily appropriate for them in terms of social settings or social norms, um, you know, comparing themselves. Like, there's so many aspects to social media that I, th I don't think kids are ready for. And it's an open door for offenders to access them. Um, so I, you know, I recommend that parents don't allow it until maybe 15. <laughs> I know that that sounds for some parents like, oh, I already opened that door. My kid already has TikTok. Well, maybe, you know, it's something that you need to monitor more closely if that's the case. Um, but if you haven't introduced it yet and they're asking for it, you know, set a limit um, of a certain age. And, you know, if they're really adamant about it, then start educating them about social media and what it is before they're allowed to, to, to enter that. Um, there's a really great, um, uh, organization, uh, and on Instagram, I think they're called cyber civics. Um, I can share that with you if you want to put it in the show notes, but it's a really great organization that, that they also have curriculum for schools. So you can invite your school to bring that curriculum in and it helps kids understand media literacy and online safety, but really with a focus on media literacy, which is important because when kids go online, we want them to learn how to be good digital citizens, um, not just to like attack somebody because, you know, they want to, they don't agree and they want to say something nasty and have this power dynamic and they don't realize, you know, what the implications of that really are. So it helps prevent things like cyberbullying and all kinds of issues. So, you know, that's really, I think, important before we just allow kids to kind of go into the wild, wild west on their own.
Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, like my generation didn't get any of that training. And we're just like, yeah, I think the- there's a lot of adults who shouldn't be on social media. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I'm, really, I'm really hopeful about future internet users and social media users for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about all that. I had a whole list of questions and we've run out of time, but (laughs) (laughs) I would have kept going. Um, Would you like to just uh, quickly just say like where people can find you? I mean, you're at Consent Parenting on Instagram, but other than that, if there's anything else you're doing that's anything new or um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, I'm very active on Instagram. So if you want to connect with me there, my DMs are open. Um, I'm also on Facebook also at Consent Parenting and my website is consentparenting.com. And if anyone wants to learn, and I do encourage you to learn about the Brave Movement, um, it's bravemovement.org. And our hashtag is really, you know, be brave for kids. So, you know, this is really about taking a stand, being brave, having those important conversations and supporting the work that, um, you know, advocates and survivors are doing to help kids be safe. So hopefully, you know, people are, are interested in that and they can check that out, bravemovement.org. Okay, great. And I'll put all the links in the notes to the show. Thanks yeah. so much for chatting to me, Rosalia. Thanks so much, Francesca. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find me, Fran, at Big Mothering on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating or reviewing it. It makes a huge difference. And thank you and bye-bye.